uh, I want to close out the panel by saying one word to my American viewers. Vote. So if I hear anybody saying their vote does not matter, then it doesn't matter who we elect. Read up on your history. It matters. We've got to get people to vote. Don't just stand there. Let's get to it. Speak your mind. There's nothing to it. Vote. And if you don't vote, you're going to get a spanky. Hello, voters. Have you voted? Are you on your way to vote? Just get back from voting. Did you vote yet? New phone, you vote? There's no denying the importance of this election. Please, make your voice heard. Get out and vote. We will vote because we make a difference. We will vote. And so we gotta make sure that we get to the polls and vote. Welcome to another edition of Propaganda Watch. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and as I'm sure I don't need to tell the American viewers in my audience, yes, of course, you've just gone through that orgy of democracy known as the ritual of casting your ballot in the midterm elections, the most important elections of our lifetime. The universe has changed, everybody. <laughs> yeah, as I say, I don't need to tell you about the enormous flood of propaganda that you've been consuming for the last uh, few months, really, here, um, certainly in the pa past few weeks, about your vote, the vote, get out the vote, it's the most important thing you can do, it's your civic duty, etc., etc., etc. And I'm sure we have all heard that phrase many times before, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. But it's actually interesting to follow the threads of that particular quote, um, a Quotation, usually spuriously attributed to Mark Twain or Emma Goldman or others, although there is no documentary proof whatsoever that they came up with that phrase. But if you look at the earliest known, recorded, printed, published uh, use of that phrase, it actually comes from a letter to the editor of, uh, I believe it was the Lowell Sun from Lowell, Massachusetts, on 24th of September 1976 uh, by... Oh, the name is uh, uh, Robert Borden, Robert S. Borden, M.D., and it's an interesting little letter to the editor. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes so you can go read it for yourself uh, in its entirety, and it is, it's like it's written by a modern-day voluntarist. It's very interesting in the way that it frames the uh, the issue of voting. It, it The letter to the editor is actually headlined, Voting is Dishonest and Fraudulent. And it says, perhaps the people are grasping reality in spite of the indoctrination we've been subjected to via our schools, media, government, and others who wish to maintain the status quo, that is, the few controlling and living at the expense of the many. <laughs> That's one hell of an opening sentence, and it could have been penned by yours truly. Uh, moving on, the, later on it says, has it ever dawned on the editors of the Lowell Sun, evidently, that the attitudes of the 70 million projected non-voters may be very consistent with the reality that the concept of voting and elective represent electing representatives is basically dishonest and fraudulent. If voting could change anything, it would be made illegal. There is no way any po a politician can legally represent anyone because he was elected on a secret ballot by a small percentage of voters. He then claims to represent the people who voted against him, and even those who wisely chose not to participate in such criminal activity. You say those 70 million stay-at-homes will forfeit their right to complain about the way they are governed, 
But being enlightened, they are perhaps saying they do not want any part of a system where coercion in the form of taxation, which is the taking of property allegedly being protected, and war, which is nothing less than murder, is the sole means of its existence. If you vote and are in the majority, you violate the rights of the minority, or vice versa. The implication is might makes right. Uh, It goes on from there. Again, please do read through that uh, letter to the editor. It uh, contains a lot of things that uh, took a lot of other people many decades to, to cotton on to. So it's it's interesting, actually, and I'm glad that that has sort of been enshrined in history in a way, because it is, as far as can be determined, the earliest printed use of that phrase. If voting changed anything, it would be made illegal. But uh, obviously, as you well know, I have been well immersed in World War One and the history surrounding World War One. Actually, for a number of years now, the initial impetus for my World War One documentary occurred to me at least in 2014, at the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of World War One. I. I really was started my, uh, along the path of I have to do a documentary on this. <laughs> well, here we are, hundredth anniversary of the end of World War One, and finally the World War One documentary is rolling out. So I have been immersed in this and thinking along these lines for years now, reading up, dipping in and out of the uh, the literature on it. But really, obviously, in the past few months, I've been immersing myself in this, and so it is in this context that I see some of the. I mean, there are any number of examples from history of why democracy and casting your ballot is a, if not immoral, although I think it is immoral, but also a meaningless exercise. But let's turn to the history of World War I for some clear examples of that. And I want to pick up on something that, again, because it was just 30 minutes, just one tiny section of one part of the World War I documentary, it, it goes so quickly you could blink and miss it. But it is an important point that I tried to make towards the end of that first part of the World War I documentary. In retrospect, the machinations that led to war are a masterclass in how power really operates in society. The military compacts that committed Britain, and ultimately the world, to war had nothing to do with elected parliaments or representative democracy. When Conservative Prime Minister Arthur Balfour resigned in 1905, deft political manipulations ensured that members of the Round Table including Herbert Henry Asquith, Edward Gray, and Richard Haldane, three men who liberal leader Henry Campbell Bannerman privately accused of Milner worship, seamlessly slid into key posts in the new liberal government and carried on the strategy of German encirclement without missing a step. In fact, the details of Britain's military commitments to Russia and France, and even the negotiations themselves, were deliberately kept hidden from members of parliament and even members of the cabinet who were not part of the secret society. It wasn't until November 1911, a full six years into the negotiations, that the cabinet of Prime Minister Herbert Henry Asquith started to learn the details of these agreements, agreements that had been repeatedly and officially denied in the press and in Parliament. Again, blink and you would have missed it, but what was conveyed there in those two short paragraphs of narration was incredibly important and backed up by mountains of specific evidence that one could write entire books about. Oh, entire books have been written about this. (laughs) So, uh, again, I hope you understand the documentarian's plight, trying to summarize literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of hard documentary evidence in consumable uh, bites of information that that will make sense in a documentary format. But 
in order to delve into that in a little bit more detail, let's consult some of those sources, some of which I hope you'll be familiar with, some which might be new to you. For example, Lord Milner's Second War, uh, the Rhodes Milner Secret Society, The Origin of World War I and the Start of the New World Order, one hell of a title, <laughs> by John P. P. Kafferke, uh, a very valuable resource when it comes to this story. And uh, Kafferke has a number of very important details and facts in this book that were important for shaping my understanding of this story, or helping me to come to a uh, fuller understanding. And in this book, he quotes uh, Milner himself. Uh, again, Alfred Milner, Sir Alfred Milner, later Lord Alfred Milner, a name that does not resound uh, to, uh, throughout history. It's not, it's not one that most people will even have heard of in this day and age, much to our detriment, because this is an incredibly important figure, specifically in the story of the formation of the well, compacts that led to World War I, but more generally speaking, in that entire secret society stew that was uh, brewing there in the early 20th century that led to, amongst other things, World War I. Um, but we don't know this name because precisely because he eschewed the official positions of political power, the, you know, the, the big roles in parliament, etc. And so, oh, well, then that's just not an important player in politics, right? No, completely wrong. Again, they want you to concentrate on the people in, in the positions of power, the political offices that you elect, gang. It's your guy. You are deciding the fate of the country, not political intrigues behind the scenes, secret societies, shadowy cabals. Oh, that's conspiracy theory, folks. No, it's conspiracy fact. And uh, Kafferke quotes uh, Milner here, who wrote in 1893 about why you don't know his name. If I were ever to return to active politics, it will be a very long way ahead, and I am inclined to think I never shall return. I feel that a man can do any amount of good work and be of the greatest service without joining in the fray can in fact be of greater service because he keeps himself in the background. I have an independent position, a great number of friends, and, I fancy, that sort of influence which disinterestedness can uh, always gives. On the other hand, I am no partisan. My interests do not run on the lines of party, and if I can help, in however small a way, to carry out the objects I have at heart, I do not care two straws how the politicians are labeled who execute them. That's it, folks. That's it in a nutshell. It couldn't, I couldn't have written it more succinctly than Milner himself did here in 1893, describing what he was going to do and then did. He used both major political parties in the two-state duopoly of, uh, of turn-of-the-century Britain. The conservatives, the liberals, it didn't matter. It was the same monolithic party from the perspective of the plotters who, behind the scenes, were hatching their plots, regardless of whoever was going to be in power. All they had to do was read the political tea leaves, see which way the country was leaning. Oh, they're going to vote liberal this time. They're going to vote conservative this time. And make sure that you have key people in key positions to make sure that the policy will remain the same. And again, this isn't even conspiracy theory. This is documented history. You can go to Wikipedia and read about the Relugus Compact, Relugus Compact, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to my Scottish uh, brethren out there, but I don't know how to pronounce that name. The Relugus Compact. And you can go to Wikipedia and read the official entry on it, where they admit, yeah, this was a secret plot hatched in 1905 by uh, Herbert Henry Asquith and Edward Gray and Richard B. Haldane to basically control the Liberal Party from behind the scenes and kick the leader of the party upstairs to the House of Lords and make him a dummy prime minister. And they they conspired with the king in order to do this through their contact in the secret society, Lord Escher. Again, all of this is in the first part of the World War One documentary that you've hopefully seen by now. If you haven't seen it, please watch it by now. Um, but uh, again, all of this is there, but of course it's pretty watered down in the Wikipedia version, of course. I mean, oh yeah, oh, there was this secret plot. Um, basically, it revolves around this compact, which again, we know because they openly wrote about it later on, um, that they made, again, Asquith and Gray and Haldane made in 1905 to control the party and to basically get Campbell uh, Bannerman either as a you know, either get him kicked out of Parliament altogether or just make sure he's a dummy Prime Minister ineffectual. And they were ultimately successful in that plot. And uh, and Caffrey writes about that in blow-by-blow blow detail in a chapter here called the uh, the Relugus, Relugus Intrigue, um, where he goes through the entire plot and the, the various um, parts of it and the documentary evidence about what happened and why it happened. Um, but let's turn to a different source. Again, this isn't all coming from one source. Um, it's just not coming from the mainstream historians that, uh, that, that control the narrative. But, uh, of course, we're talking about Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War by Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor. And you'll note that Jerry Doherty is one of the uh, figures interviewed for this World War I do uh, documentary. And, again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages on this very subject voluminous detail, and that's not even getting into the the follow-up, prolonging the agony, how the Anglo-American establishment deliberately extended World War I by three and a half years. Again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentary evidence, extremely important part of the narrative that we haven't even touched on yet in this uh, documentary. And, the, well, more on that later. But, uh, but coming from this, uh, there's, again, uh, no shortage of evidence that going to the ballot box and casting your vote is not the answer when there are secret groups that conspire behind the scenes to make sure your vote doesn't matter. Now, the specific context of this story is at the end of 1905, specifically December of 1905, the Prime Minister of England, Arthur Balfour, resigns. He is he resigns as Prime Minister, and the very next month there's an election in which Balfour's Conservative Party is drubbed. It's an absolute landslide for the Liberal Party, the other side of the aisle. People want to change. They want something different. Where have we heard this story before? So, landslide victory for the Liberal Party, led by Campbell Bannerman, who is a um, a pa pacifist, or at least certainly not interested in the war plot plan of this Milner, Rhodes, Secret Society, Cabal, whatever, Roundtable. Again, goes by many, many, many different names. And yes, Roundtable didn't come in until 1909, etc., etc. So uh, there's different names, which is part of the problem of even talking about this conspiracy. And I think deliberately so. But anyway, uh, so Campbell Bannerman is definitely not running on their platform, i.e. let's get into war with Germany. And the people pick up on that. And, they res and that absolutely resonates with the people. So... At the same time as these ongoing machinations, i.e. the Relugas Compact and 
they're maneuvering behind the scenes with the Committee of Imperial Defense and all of that. The Liberal Party was vigorously campaigning against the country on a promise of peace, retrenchment, and reform. Campbell Bannerman began the campaign with a rousing rally in the Albert Hall, now you know how many holes it takes to fit. Where he denounced war and promised that the liberal uh, and promised that the liberal foreign policy would be opposed to aggression and to adventure, animated by a desire to be on the best terms with all nationalities and to cooperate with them in the common work of civilization. He added, "We are fighting against those powers, privileges, injustices, and monopolies which are unalterably opposed to the triumph of democratic principles." And these prescient words were further expanded into a vision for his government. It is vain to seek peace if you do not also ensure it. The growth of armaments is a great danger to the peace of the world. What nobler role could this great country assume than at this fitting moment to place itself at the head of the League of Peace? And they go on to editorially note, on such a promise, Campbell Bannerman led his party to a landslide victory in 1906. So the people definitely resonated with that message. But that wasn't the plan. That was not the game plan. So the secret elite, the roundtable, the Milner group, whatever you call them, did actively conspire to get Campbell Bannerman kicked upstairs, made into the dummy prime minister, basically uh, completely made irrelevant uh, as... Again, Asquith and Gray and Haldane maneuvered themselves into key positions in the cabinet, and ultimately, of course, Asquith took over as prime minister in 1908. Now, that wasn't the end of the the intrigue. Again, there's so much more detail here, but I think the key part of this comes, or at least the key part for the World War I story comes later on, where the extent, the scope of the deception and the lies that were done in order to bring about this maneuvering that led to the First World War, is eventually somewhat sort of revealed, um, but in a just an incredible, outrageous way. So, again, reading from Hidden History. Um, Even with pliant and trusted men in the cabinet, the secret elite had to keep their plan for war under tight wraps. Had the public known of their intent to manipulate a war with Germany, the government would have been swept from office. The regular meetings between military strategists from France and Britain that had taken place in secret since 1905, sanctioned by Asquith, Gray, and Haldane, were still only known to a privileged few, but secrecy was not easily maintained. Those in the know were bound to grow in number as the work of the Committee of Imperial Defense expanded. Foreign ministers and diplomats heard unconfirmed whispers or were included in confidential briefings. Newspaper editors and owners had sight of information that was kept from the public domain, but it could not last. By November 1911, sources from different parts of Europe made confident claims that secret deals had been done. Deals that bound Britain to France and Russia through military and naval agreements that were repeatedly and officially denied in Parliament and in public. There was a furious row in Asquith's cabinet on 15th of November when details of the secret meeting of the Committee of Imperial Defense, to which Asquith had summoned both Churchill and Lloyd George, came to the attention of a number of ministers who had not been invited. Lord Morley, himself a very senior minister, demanded an explanation about the joint planning between the French and British general staffs. How had this come about? Who sanctioned it? How could this have happened without the knowledge and approval of the cabinet? What precisely did it mean in terms of international commitments? No matter how much the Relegus Three squirmed, they could not find an answer to one t- telling question. 
if the conversations really did not commit the country to war, why should information be withheld? Sir Edward Grey's lame and utterly insincere analysis of the conspiracy to keep the cabinet in ignorance, as recorded in his official memoirs, meekly claimed there was no reluctance to have the whole matter discussed at cabinet. The only difficulty arose from the thing having gone on so long without the cabinet generally being informed. Apparently, Gray, Haldane, and Asquith had simply forgotten to inform cabinet members in 1905 and never got around to bringing up the issue thereafter. What a pathetic excuse. And uh, there's more examples of that. For example, in the memoirs where Gray com complains memory loss, I just, I'd forgotten that I hadn't uh, informed certain people about these types of negotiations. And all of this, again, all of it documented here in excruciating details, lots and lots of footnotes and documents and references. Um, incredible stuff. And stuff that really does put the lie to what we're all told. Of course, you just cast your ballot, and then your representatives will represent you, and that will steer the course of society. It's the people in the positions that you have elected that are the real people steering this ship of state, right? Wrong. 100% wrong. And it's not just the British side of this, as we will get into in part two of the World War I Conspiracy, dropping very shortly on CorporateReport.com. Yeah, it happened in America, too. Uh, again, specifically surrounding World War I and the issue of peace. Let's vote for peace, guys. Let's vote for the peace candidate. He'll lead us into peace. He'll make sure we have peace. Oh, wait. Yeah, he gets into office and suddenly it's war. It happens over and over and over throughout history. If voting made any difference, they'd make it illegal. As I say, the World War I conspiracy will continue to spill out through CorbyReport.com in the coming weeks, so I hope you will continue to stay tuned as uh, this documentary continues to unfold, and I'm glad that you are on board for this part of the story. It's an incredibly important part, and as I say, I could make half-hour videos expanding on every paragraph of narration in this documentary, but uh, I hope you get the idea. Anyway, please do actually go and check out these sources. For the people who are interested in this history and uh, are interested in actually reading books and actually looking at documentary evidence for these types of claims, these are a couple of good places to start. I have literally mountains of, of other books here that I'm using in the creation of this documentary, but uh, we'll get more into that in the coming weeks. So again, stay tuned, CorbettReport.com. James Corbett, thank you for joining me.